Welcome back to Sound Insight. Great to be with you today. So uh, let's begin with prayer. I want to dive right in. <laughs> We're going to pray first. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, I thank you and I praise you for um, the ways that you love us and take care of us, the ways that you bless us. And Lord, I ask that you would um, give us grace and mercy. Give us the grace to have the strength we need, the enlightenment we need, we need the courage we need to be able to, to uh, gain wisdom and to be obedient. Lord, uh, these are challenging times, uh, and we just ask for all the uh, divine interventions in our lives that we would keep focused on you. Lord, help us to stay focused on uh, on you as uh, what is most important as uh, our relationship with you here and now and forever in heaven. Lord, we just praise you for the gift of creation. We praise you for the gift of redemption that you won, Jesus, by coming to earth and dying for us. And we thank you for the gift of sanctification leading us home to the Father. Help us, Lord, to remember what is ultimately most important in life. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Proverbs say, in times of adversity, we forget prosperity. And in times of prosperity, we forget adversity. Uh, I'm feeling a little bit of that. Um, I have not been to Mass in two weeks. Doesn't that sound weird? I haven't been to Mass in two weeks. I've been, I was going every day, and um, I got sick, and it has kept me home. I, I've been kind of living a cloistered life. I, I think I've gone outside only, I don't know, two or three times in the last two weeks. Um, just kind of weighed down by a... Um, it's just a seasonal flu. It's not COVID or anything, but it's just like a seasonal flu. And it is just clinging on to me. It is, uh, it, it, it wears me out, you know? Um, anyways, I just say a prayer. I would appreciate that. Uh, and I say this because, um, I'm not always aware of the ways in which I rely on the grace that flows from prayer, that flows from receiving Holy Communion, the prayer that uh, the grace that flows from taking personal prayer time and being a leader of family prayer times. That's really suffered in the last two weeks. Just have not had the energy um, and, and the health to be able to do those things. And um, I, I can see a bit of the impact. I'm not sure I see all of it, but... Um, I, I know this, my resistance to staying on the healthy eating plan <laughs> has completely collapsed. Maybe that's part of it. Um, and uh, I, unfortunately, I I can't just not work. So I'm also still working, even though just doing it from home and using Zoom quite a bit. Um, and uh, anyways, I, I say this uh, because it's just, it's it's a matter of physical health and it's only been a couple of weeks. And in times of prosperity, you forget adversity. And in times of adversity, you forget prosperity. And when I say forget, um, when the scriptures say forget, the scriptures are, are not just talking about you no longer factually have a memory. It's that your consciousness of it, your awareness of what it was like to be healthy in your body, it 
diminishes. It just, it washes away from the awareness. It's like, I don't remember what it felt like to be able to have that verve and that energy and that ability. And and this is going someplace, folks, okay? So just stick with me. Um, it's not just about my health, but this is about uh, my physical health. This is about all of our relational health, emotional health, psychological health, spiritual health, family health, marital health. In times of adversity, we forget prosperity. In times of prosperity, we forget adversity. Sometimes we just don't always realize what we are lacking. We literally don't have the awareness because we become accustomed to a lack of health, a lack of richness and verve that the Lord has in store for us, but we we don't have it in our minds that this is what the Lord can lead us to. This is where the Lord can take us. And so, yes, please say a prayer for me, for my um, physical health. I, I, w- I would appreciate that. Uh, it, I'm tired of being in this. This kind of happens every year to me. I, I don't know why it's kind of but it's just, it, it's, I get knocked down by a flu for um, a couple of weeks, and it just slows life down for me. But be that as it may, um, and I do appreciate that, so thank you. But I want to instead, in this Advent season, draw attention to the reality that we can come to be aware of ways that we can um Uh, in ways that we are settling for less than the full flourishing that God intends for our lives. Let me say that again. We can be laboring in a relational sickness, in a spiritual sickness, and not even be aware of it. We've literally forgotten, right? One of the effects of sin is that it darkens the intellect. One of the effects of sin is that it darkens the intellect. And so when we settle for less in our moral lives, settle for less in our spiritual lives, when we are not striving to love the Lord our God in our hearts, souls, minds, and strength, in our relationships, if we don't strive to put the Lord first, there's a way in which we're suffering. Uh, we are undergoing less than what the Lord intends for us, and we're experiencing a diminishment of the fullness of what God has for us. We're not flourishing in these different dimensions of our lives. And so Advent can be a time for us to say, come Lord Jesus, come into those places in our lives, those relationships, those dimensions of our lives where we are blind, where we are lacking in that awareness of the fact that we're sick and we think we're quite well, where we are in the midst of adversity and not even realizing there's such a thing as a prosperity that the Lord has for us. And how do we get there? How do we do that? Well, yesterday um, was the Feast of St. Nicholas. And I don't know if you did this in your home. It's a tradition in our home to um, put out the shoes. And of course, you have the oranges. Um, and then maybe a few other candies, typically the gold coins, right? They're, they're chocolate, not not. <laughs> You know what I mean? And um, and Carrie is really good about uh, doing a couple things. One is sweet cereal. So there's a little treat that, that that is rarely in the current house, but 
she'll get a sweet cereal. So it was Lucky Charms this time. And, um, and then a book or books for the kids to have during Advent. And um, one of the books will be a Christmas-inspired book. And another one will be a book that is designed to help our kids uh, with where they're at in their lives. And so I, lo and behold, got a book. Carrie got me a book for St. Nicholas. It's called The Intentional Father. The Intentional Father by John Tyson. I had not heard of him. My daughter, Mary Grace, um, was saying, oh, no, he's kind of a big deal in, in the Christian world um, as a, I don't know if he's a pastor or an author. I'll have to find out more. But The Intentional Father, um, you know, hey, I was like, the book, the cover, it was kind of a cool quality kind of cover and, and, and layout design. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is a book that's going to sell just because of the title and the cover. But surprisingly, um, it had a, a lot of really good content in it. I, I know it, I only had it, I used it um, during my um, prayer time yesterday. I, I, this is the thing, I don't have a lot of energy to be able to pray well. So I was just sort of flipping through the book and I, I, was, I was able to be taken into it. And um, there were some really neat things that were part of that book. Now, one of the things that he ends up mentioning in this book, oh, sorry, two things. Sorry, I'm going in two directions. The first is this. That book is, for me, a way to shine a mirror into my own fathering. Let me say that again. I'm using the book to hopefully go from blindness to sight. I'm reading the book to let a new light shine on the call that I have as a father. I talk a lot about being a father, but am I aware of my blind spots? And the answer is no, I'm not, because that's why they're called blind spots. And so this book Carrie gave to me because she said, because, hey, you know, you know, she knows how passionate I am about the topic. Why not gain some inspiration, some encouragement, some further uh, guidance or practical tips or principles. And sure enough, I found a lot of those things, even in the short amount, I mean, the, the, sh- the short amount of time I've had the book, I've just had it for a day. Uh, I'm recording this uh, in on the evening of St. Nicholas. So 12 hours, all I've had it. And um, it really very interesting. And I'm actually implementing it after this program. Now, I don't mean in the morning, but after this program, um, Actually, in I'm gonna be, I should in the middle of the program. I'm gonna stop recording. I'm gonna go do a, a a session with my high schoolers on. Are you ready? Scripture, tradition, and magisterium. How cool is that? Scripture, tradition, and magisterium. And I'm doing this as part of upping my game as a father. Um, I you know I think I do a lot of teaching for my kids. I think I do a lot of formation for my kids. But reading this book, the answer is I'm not doing enough. And I can do some focused work as well, some focused work. So the uh, there is, as you know, my kids go to the Oaks. It's a classical Christian school, and uh, it's really cool. Uh, you know, I say it's the most Catholic school my kids have ever gone to. I say that like today I got the podcast on um, on today, and the podcast the theme was um, Happy Saint Nicholas Day, and the um, the the text for the podcast that they read was on what is Christmas by G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> so the reflection was on a Catholic bishop whom they referred to as Saint Nicholas. And the uh, 
the, the text they read was from a convert to the Catholic faith on the meaning of Christmas, which you just got to love it, right? You just got to love it. Anyways, the, they have a, um, a table talk. So they send home these little um, themes of discussion for my kids to have at the dinner table which I think is so cool because how often are we as parents wanting to engage in meaningful conversation with our kids at dinner and not just fall back into the same old questions? What did you do at school today? I don't know. What did you do? What was your favorite part of school today? And and then it quickly, what did you do at recess, right? And so did, how do you get beyond that? How do you make it more engaging, meaningful, rich, and and give you as a, as a parent, as a mother or a father, a chance to... Um, to form your kids, to hand on to your kids some wisdom. So this week, the question was on the uh, divine authority versus mere human authority. And for Christians, what part does scripture play in being a source of authority for our own lives as compared to simply relying on ourselves or on some other created reality? And I'm like, oh, this is awesome because this is a really neat chance that I have, um, as commanded by the school, to um, form my kids and help shape my kids in the understanding that for Catholics, um, the authority for our lives of faith is the Word of God. And it's really the meaning of the Word of God, right? So the Word of God for Catholics involves scripture and tradition. There's holy, there's sacred scripture and there's sacred uh, tradition, which together make up the one, revel, the revelation of God that comes in Jesus Christ and is entrusted to the church as the word of God. And this sacred deposit of the faith, this word of God entrusted to the church, is entrusted to the magisterium, or the teaching authority that Christ himself has established. And so that's called the magisterium. The magisterium is the teaching authority of the church that resides in the bishops that are successors of the apostles in union with the successor of St. Peter, the bishop of Rome, or the pope. And so there's a way in which the brilliance, the genius uh, the uh, supernatural plan for how the Lord intends authority to be at work, his authority to be at work in his church, is revealed in a way that is clear and profound if you have an understanding and faith of these three elements, scripture, tradition, and magisterium. And it's not something that is typical. It's not something that, you know, the ordinary Catholic gets, and certainly um, Christians or Protestants don't really get at all. So we'll dig into this more in a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. And uh, today, uh, well, in a short little 15 minutes from now, I'm going to be um, teaching my kids what I'm sharing with you right now, which is... What is the way in which the authority of Christ continues to operate in our lives? Jesus Christ, who revealed who God is and proclaimed the gospel, 
handed on this divine mission. He handed it on to his successors, the apostles. He handed it on to the whole church. And this mission was what? Go and make disciples of all nations. And actually, you know, to read that text from Matthew 28, it refers to the concept of authority. Jesus says, full authority has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to carry out everything I have commanded you. And know that I am with you always until the end of the world. So that scripture right there beautifully lays out this concept of scripture, tradition, and magisterium, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, um, the revelation of the Father, proclaims the gospel in its fullness, reveals the gospel in its fullness, lives the gospel in its fullness, demonstrates the gospel in its fullness by his life, his deeds, his teaching, his miracles, his exorcisms, um, his um, supernatural work, and then through his passion and death and resurrection. And now, ascend, before he ascends into heaven, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, whom I have established as the successors of the apostles, as, as, my, as, as, as my 12 that I'm sending to continue to do the work that I've done. You will be my continuation on earth. Jesus Christ will continue to be at work in the world through the, through the church that he has established. Uh, and, and in particular with the authority, his authority that he's entrusted to these apostles, the 12 apostles and their successors. And so you, you see this beautiful line of apostolic succession, it's called that they are the ones who have this teaching authority. And by the gift of the Spirit, with the charism of truth, they are protected from leading the church into error in matters of faith and morals. So the deposit of the faith is protected by divine protection. Um, and yet the, um, the reality of the, that which has been entrusted to the magisterium, the teaching authority, is the content of faith. The and that's the other meaning of the word magisterium. I know that can be kind of tricky. Magisterium can refer to the authority of te to teach that is held by this group of bishops or it refers to that which is taught the the official teaching of those who carry that authority. Make sense? So again, magisterium refers either to those who hold the authority to teach that gets traced all the way back to Jesus Christ who has sent these apostles to baptize and teach and, um, and, 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 and has granted them his spirit to ensure a supernatural basis and power at work in the church's life and in the unfolding of the church's life in history. And so that teaching, the Word of God, takes two forms. It takes the form of tradition, and it takes the form of Scripture. So if you just said, for instance, well, I, I, I get Scripture, right? I understand that Scripture is, is a form of the Word of God. That's easy. It's, it's God's Word. It's, it's, it's a book. It, you can put it in your hands. You can say, here's the beginning, the middle, and the end. Tradition gets a little bit more, um, a little bit more, uh, 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 less concrete. It's a little less concrete. It's a little more elusive when you try to say, 
well, what is the word of God as tradition? And then you read and the church says, well, the tradition is all that the church is and all that the church believes, right? It's, it's, the, it's the essential realities of the church that get handed on from generation to generation. And so um, this idea that this gospel um, is handed on um, orally or in writing. So in writing we get, but orally it's, well, the apostles— they had this spoken word and the example they gave and the institutions they established, what they had received, whether from Christ, uh, from the lips of Christ, or from his way of life in his works, or whether they had learned it at the prompting of the Spirit. That's what the church says is this reality of tradition. And so through tradition, the church in her doctrine, life, and worship perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she is, and all that she believes. Let me say that again. Through sacred tradition, the church in her doctrine, life, and worship perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is and all that she believes. And so if that's what the reality of tradition is, we can say, well, it's important, but is that actually the Word of God? How is the Word of God manifest in forms of tradition, in, in this reality of sacred tradition? Well, I think the easiest example, and which is also the most profound example, would be the example of Jesus Christ. And I would say, how does the presence, how does the risen reality of Christ come into contact in our lives through the Word of God in these two forms? Well, remember, one form of the Word of God is Scripture. Well, is how is Christ related to Scripture? Well, Jesus is the Word of God. And we, if we understand the Scriptures as these God-breathed, inspired texts it's in, in, in reading these texts in faith that we encounter Christ. Christ is present and awaits us. He, is, uh, he has made himself available to be encountered through the scriptures. So there's a powerful reality right there that the, the scriptures aren't just a holy book that Catholics and Christians embrace. No, it's a place of encounter with Jesus Christ present in the scriptures. Well, if you look at the tradition, you say, where's where's Jesus Christ present in the, in the tradition? Well, one of the most profound manifestations of tradition is or are the sacraments. And among the sacraments, there is, of course, the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. And the Holy Eucharist isn't just a symbol of Jesus Christ. It's not just a remembrance of Jesus Christ. It's not just something that lets us recall what Jesus established at the Last Supper. No, it's the presence of Jesus Christ. And so you have the real presence of Jesus Christ is there as Eucharist. It's really Jesus. So you have Jesus present under the form of tradition or in an expression of tradition, and Jesus present in an expression of Scripture. And so there's a beautiful way that you can see how the church venerates and honors this encounter with Christ and the presence of Christ manifests both as Scripture and 
in the tradition, specifically, of the Eucharist. And you say, well, wait a minute, how is Christ present in that as Eucharist? How does he actually get there? We don't have a host that's 2,000 years old. No, the, the tradition, the Word of God at work in the life of the church. Oh, wait a minute, all that the church... Uh, all the church's beliefs, the church's life, and the church's worship perpetuates and transmits all the church is and all the church believes. Okay, well, we see that in the context in which the Eucharist becomes the presence of Christ. That's the sacred liturgy. What's the sacred liturgy? Oh, that's the church's worship. Well, it's a the sacred liturgy is a place of worship, but it's not just anybody who gets the liturgical books and says the words can cause the Eucharist to occur. A tra- you know, the, the transubstantiation of bread and wine into Eucharist. You, you can even put on the clothes. You can dress up in liturgical vestments. And you can say all the words, but nothing happens unless what happens? Ooh, unless there's an ordained priest. And that ordained priest is ordained by a bishop. Ooh, and that bishop has to be a bishop that is properly consecrated a bishop, traced back to union with the Pope in Rome. And then that bishop, in union with the Pope in Rome, gets traced back to a previous successor and a previous successor going all the way back to, ooh, look at that the choice of the 12 apostles and the sending of the 12, uh, empowering them with the Spirit, Jesus, on Easter Sunday. Um, you know, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Uh, that you stop and say, oh, wow, okay, I think I'm getting um, a clearer picture here, that tradition is something that traces all the way back to Jesus Christ, and it's the church living her life, but it's not just any old folks who self-identify as the church. It's the church under the manifestation of those who are connected to the authority that Christ is and has in hands on to those whom he has chosen and their successors. So, you will not have a clear understanding of Scripture without understanding tradition, without understanding apostolic succession, or the word I've been using is magisterium. Okay, are you tracking with me? So we need to have these three stay together. We need Scripture, we need tradition, and we need magisterium. We need the teaching authority and those who hold and exercise that authority, and the content that that authority is the servant of, that is upholding and protecting and nurturing. Okay, now, why is this important? Well, let's take a look at what happens when you have a Christian body of believers who are down the street, may have their congregation, whether they realize it or not, remember we talked about that awareness earlier in the program? We, we have this, we're not aware of, of the things that we sometimes are saying or doing. Um, there's a body of believers that are going to say that their authority is Scripture alone, sola scriptura, that their only authority is the Scriptures. And so what they believe, they believe because they find it in the Scriptures. And so when you stop and just ask them, hey, can, can we break this open a little bit? So when you say that what you believe is found in the scriptures, um, you have certain doctrines about 
you know, what life is, what, uh, h- how to live your life, right? And all kinds of matters of faith and morals, who God is, what the Blessed Trinity is, um, how do we get close to that God? How do we stay in good union with that God? What happens when we fall? What's the nature of sin? Well, what are sins, right? All of these different doctrines. And if you ask a typical pastor, of a congregation, they're going to say one of two things. They're going to say, well, all of, all of our beliefs in this congregation come from the scriptures and the scriptures alone. And we'll say, well, what about the fact that your beliefs differ from the church that is a couple blocks away who has a pastor that says the same thing, that they and what they believe and how they practice their faith on a Sunday actually differs, and differs in some significant ways um, from the other church down the street. And even though they use the same principle, well, we believe that Scripture is, our own, uh, is the basis of authority for our beliefs in our way of life. And, and, and now they're left in a quandary, because it's not just two of them, but there'll be 22,000 of them, 44,000 of them, just in America alone, different communities of believers who all will claim or trace back to some form or other of, I believe that scripture alone is the basis of the teachings that we embrace and the practices that we follow. And yet they differ from each other. And so it leads to a really odd discontinuity or a lack of clarity that is um, associated with the idea of interpreting scripture because you have all these different interpretations. Now, wait a minute, all of a sudden we come down to the second element to this, which is tradition. Because the other answer that will be very common is that, oh, well, our congregation is part of a network of congregations that are present here in the United States, and we can trace it back to its historical beginning in 1970-something or 1940-something or 1800s or back in Europe, and there'll be some historical beginning, and um, almost all of them are going to trace back to um, the Reformation, right, in the 16th century, and that'll be the historical origin of their beliefs, will be a congregation of believers that identify with this person as a founder who is attempting to reform uh, the church or the church's beliefs or the church's practices at that time, and that's the, oh, wait a minute, what's the word? Tradition. That's the tradition they have. And even though they wouldn't say it, they wouldn't use it, there is a way in which, unbeknownst to them, or they're unaware of the fact that how they are, okay, now here's the word, how they are interpreting what the scriptures say. What is the valid way of interpreting the scriptures is what they're handing on from generation to generation. So whether it's their beliefs, their morality, their way of life, or their worship, their way of worship is, well, that's their tradition. And even though they wouldn't establish it as having the same authority as the scriptures, they, in a subtle way, are, because it's that interpretation of the scriptures that they are exalting as the correct way of reading the scriptures, of living a shared life in their congregation, of promoting this set of um, moral um, rules and uh, a way of worship, that what they establish as their way of living sola scriptura is their authoritative tradition. So there's scripture, 
there's tradition. Remember that third element? Well, that third element's also there in these other congregations, and that, that element's magisterium. How? Well, I'll tell you in a minute. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. And so today I'm talking about uh, scripture, tradition, and magisterium. These are three, like, think of the three legs to a stool, right? In, in every church, every congregation of believers, whether they're aware of it or not, has these three legs of the stool. They have the scriptures. And for many of the um, Protestant congregations or non-Catholic Christian bodies of believers, they'll, they will establish the idea or are based on the idea that uh, Scripture alone is their authority. Scripture alone is the Word of God. And yet, if you ask them why do they embrace their own interpretation of the Scriptures as correct as compared to the other 40 or 50 or 60,000 uh, bodies of believers that also self-identify as Christians and identify sola scriptura, Scripture alone, as the authority for their beliefs, you will have um, this sense of, well, we're right and they're wrong. Um, well, we actually correctly interpret the Scriptures as it is related to what the Scriptures authoritatively teach about beliefs, about morals, and about a way of worshiping God. And that's their tradition. That's what they hold as tradition. And um, again, whether they're aware of it or not, that carries a degree of authority. That if you are going to propose a break from a belief, a, uh, a moral, uh, a, a code of morality, a, a set of morals, or a way of worship, what does that typically lead to? Well, it leads to a split and a breaking off of a new congregation. And so um, you have uh, that, that, that's sort of the sad reality of when you have um, a tradition that is an attempt to, again, interpret the Word of God, the Scriptures, as their authority, and it lacks the authoritative quality um, in a conscious way, well, you end up with division and splits in new congregations. Um, so there was the third leg of the stool. The third leg of the stool is, is a divinely established authority that can trace back to Jesus Christ. And that divinely established authority that's traced back to Jesus Christ in the reality of the church he established, we'd call this the institutional reality of the church, is what Christ did with the apostles, establishing them as the successors. They are the ones who were sent. And so they were, um, they were inspired and taught to appoint successors. And so they did. So the successors of the apostles are the bishops. And, and, and this concept of authority or magisterium, those who have that Christ-established authority, and the magisterium, the actual deposit of the faith, the way of authentically interpreting the Word of God, authentically interpreting the Word of God, is the safeguard from these ongoing divisions and splits in the church. So the church's magisterium, this deposit of faith, are the core sets of beliefs, the core set of morality, and the core way of worship, the seven sacraments, for instance, that makes the church the church. 
And so the magisterium, the teaching authority, and those who hold that office that uh, is imbued with that authority, namely the bishops and their successors in union with Peter, uh, the Pope, they are the ones who are the servants of the doctrine of the faith. They are not the masters. They don't get to willy-nilly change it. No, they are at the service of it. They attempt to faithfully proclaim it, faithfully um, show how it applies, show how it is to be lived in their age, in their location, in their culture, in their language, in their situation. And so you can see how if, if, you, if you're kind of following with me here, Scripture, tradition, and magisterium all stand together. It's the nature of how God created us. And so we look to the bishops as the ones who are successors of the apostles. What an incredible thing. What a gift. And so you have in the church this ordained ministry of governing, teaching, and sanctifying the church that is associated with the priesthood in its fullness, the bishops. Now that... Um, with that that schema, by the way, bishops, priests, and deacons, goes all the way back to the first century. You see it in the scriptures, and then you see it in the writings of the apostolic fathers, this reality of bishops and priests and deacons. As they um, assigned, ordained leaders in the one church of Christ, the Catholic Church. And so um, where this shows up um, in terms of living our Catholic life with our Protestant brothers and sisters regarding sola scriptura, it has at least two applications. Um, the first is this, is that when someone says sola scriptura, it's by scripture alone, right? Scripture alone is the word of God, that one of the things that immediately is a quandary and really doesn't have a simple, clean answer is that scripture— let's say specifically the New Testament, just to, just to keep it really simple, didn't drop from heaven. Scripture, the 27 books that make up the New Testament, wasn't, that wasn't decided by Jesus Christ, which books were going to be in the Bible. The books were written like 15 years with the early, like First Thessalonians was probably the first book written, and that was probably written 48, 49 AD. Christ died and, uh, and rose and ascended in 33. So 16 years before the first letter of St. Paul was written. So for 16 years, the church of Jesus Christ operated without the New Testament, not without the gospel. The gospel was proclaimed. The, the gospel was lived. The gospel was uh, shaped and molded how a community of faith worshipped what they believed. They had a profession of faith. You can see this in the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. Ah, that was, a, that was a book from the first century that was widely popular but wasn't identified as scripture, yet it had a tremendous influence. And what does it show us? It shows us that um, there were many, many books and letters floating around in the first century, most of which did not end up in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament, as a corpus of books, only gradually came into a list of accepted, a canonical list, a list of, yes, this is the rule, these are the ones that are inspired and these aren't, and who, who chose that? Who determined that? Who was the one who said, these are in and these aren't? It wasn't some 
someone who received a prophetic insight one day and said, yes, these are the ones and not them. And everyone said, yes, we confirm that this one was inspired by God. No, it was a bunch of Catholic bishops. Oh, wait a minute. Catholic bishops, magisterium, the ones who have received the authority that Christ established. I mean, that Christ established with his authority and continued in the church. So the scriptures are a fruit of tradition. Let me say that again. Scriptures, the word of God as scripture, is a manifestation and a fruit of sacred tradition. And it is a confirmation of and expression of the action of the magisterium. So at a fundamental level, the idea of Scripture alone is authoritative, Scripture alone is the Word of God, is, guess what, an expression of an authority that does not trace back to Christ. It traces back to Martin Luther. It traces back to um, to John Calvin and, and Zwingli, uh, uh, others who are attempting to undermine that reality of apostolic succession. And yet, historically, it, there's, there's, no, there's no getting around the reality that the Scriptures are the Word of God, but they're the fruit of tradition, the Word of God. And they are these books and not those books because of the authority exercised by the magisterium, those holding the office of the authority that Christ established in the church. And it was the content, this doctrine of the faith, this sacred deposit of the faith that allowed them to discern, yes, these letters are inspired by God and are to be included in the New Testament, and these other ones aren't. And so that's the first part of it, is that when you say Scripture, Tradition, Magisterium, as the three necessary components, if you're going to truly understand the authority of Scripture— the authority of Scripture won't be understood unless you understand the authority of tradition, which gave birth to the authority, the Scriptures, which hold the authority as Word of God. And if you don't appreciate the reality that there were office holders, those who held the position of successors of the apostles, the bishops in the Catholic Church, who were exercising their magisterial authority to be able to say, in the light of the teaching of the Church, the magisterium, that yes, this book is the Word of God, Old and New Testament. These 27 books in the New Testament and these 72 books in the Old Testament. No, not 72, sorry. 40, uh, the, the, I can't even add. <laughs> the 45 in the Old Testament. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. I know I said 72. Some of you might be thinking, oh, it's 73. Uh, it depends on whether you're going to combine Jeremiah and Lamentation. So I think the modern tr uh, translation says 73 books in the, um, in the book. Uh, so it's whether you have 45 or 46 in the Old Testament and the 27 in the New Testament. Okay. Um, so Scripture, Tradition, Magisterium. Just keep holding on to that. You have the Word of God as Scripture. 
You have the word of God as tradition in things like the sacraments, in things like apostolic succession, like the, the bishops and priests and, and the way of worship in the church and the church's beliefs. Um, and then you have a magisterium, the teaching office and those who hold it or the content of that, that the office is intended to protect and develop and, um, and um, proclaim in every generation. So that reality is present in every church, right? Uh, in every Christian body of believers, even those who say Scripture alone is their authority. Uh, because as, as I've already brought out, the interpretation of those Scriptures in the, in the doctrines, in the morals, and in the way of life, there is some group who says authoritatively in our congregation, this is what that doctrine is. This is what that means for the way of life. And this is what that means for how it is we worship. So every body of believers, just by the very nature of human beings, has not only that, that text that they would identify as um, supreme, as, as inspired, as a holy book, in this instance in scripture, but they're also going to have a historical set of beliefs around how that's supposed to impact our lives. And gonna, there's going to be someone who says, yes, that's the right way of interpreting it. No, that's the wrong way of interpreting it. Or you know what they're going to do? They're going to go start another church. Someone else will say, I have the authority, and this scripture is going to take this form in belief, this form in way of life, and this form in the way of worship. It, it, this is just a, like, call it sociological if you want. It's just the nature of a body of believers. Okay, this then leads to, well, what, is, what do Catholics say? What are the resources Catholic can, Catholics can have regarding the concept of Scripture alone is the Word of God? And in addition to the things that I've said already, and it would be this, it would be, you know, we have a different interpretation of the Scriptures when it comes to a particular belief, a particular moral uh standing or a particular way of worship than you do. And, and we can agree to disagree, and we can focus on what we have in common in Christ, and that should be our focus anyways. I'll come to that last. But when it comes to the question of standing for our faith, uh, the work of apologetics, showing that our beliefs are reasonable, showing that our beliefs have a basis in the Scriptures— um, would be to point out a simple question. And that's the question of, when did your belief first appear in the history of Christianity? When did your interpretation of the scriptures regarding that particular belief, when did it first show up? How widespread was that belief? Show us evidence of it. And, and that can give a degree of validity, that can give a degree of warrant. Is it warranted to uphold your interpretation of the scriptures as the correct one if, in fact, you can't find an early and consistent inter uh, present presentation of that interpretation of the scriptures in the life of the church? And so for me, the the, the most powerful example of this is the reality of Jesus in the Eucharist. Is Jesus' presence in the Eucharist, when he says in John 6, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, was he being merely symbolic? 
or did he mean what he said? Was he being literal in saying that, uh, in foreshadowing the reality of the Eucharist, that this is my body which is given up for you, this is my blood which is poured out for you? Um, did he mean what he said, or was he just being symbolic? Well, if you take a look at the earliest writings of the fathers of the church, if you take a look at the consistent history of the interpretations of those scriptures, what you'll discover is the Catholic belief in the scriptures that he meant what he said, and he said what he meant. And the idea that what he presented in John 6 and, and in the New Testament and what has been lived in the life of the church was in fact something that was only intended to be symbolically interpreted, interpreted as a symbol, takes more than a thousand years to appear. In fact, when there were challenges against the belief that it was merely a symbol, that I mean that it was challenges against the belief that this is the real presence of Jesus, the challenges were that it wasn't an extreme enough interpretation that not only was it the real presence of Jesus, trans, the bread and wine transformed into the presence of Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, but that, in fact, it was the physical, historical flesh and blood of Jesus. They wanted to become even more rigorous and literal, not more symbolic. The idea that this would hedge in a symbolic direction takes more than a thousand years to appear. And and you stop and say, does that make you wonder at all if your belief, your own interpretation and the belief of your community is that this is a symbolic recalling, a memorializing of what Jesus did, that that's all that Jesus was doing at the Last Supper, was using bread and wine in a meal that was meant to recall what he did in a symbolic way. Does it trouble you at all that there's no evidence that the church believed this or lived this for more than a thousand years? And then when it did finally show up, it was identified as heretical. Does that make you pause and wonder whether the belief that you have, which you have probably because it's the belief you uh, it's the belief of the church that you're part of, the congregation that you're part of, that in fact, that may not have historical warrant. And it might make you wonder whether that interpretation of the scriptures is in fact the correct one. Or at a minimum, at a minimum, can it do this? Would it allow you to have some conceptual space inside your mind and some room inside your heart to say that the Catholic embracing of this belief as true and literal has a warrant in history. It's warranted. It's the, that interpretation has a rational basis in its favor and has a basis to say, I can see why you would say that that's a valid interpretation. As hard as it is for you to believe it, uh, to accept it as true, and, and you can even doubt it yourself, I can see why Catholics would say that. To at least... That could be a fruit. That could be a fruit of going down this long road of saying, Scripture alone never stands alone. It never, ever, ever, ever stands alone. It always stands with tradition. And tradition, remember, is 
all that the church is, all that the church believes, right? So the church is doctrine, way of life, and worship. Every congregation of believers has something to say about that, as well as a, an office and an office holder that has the authority to say, this interpretation of the scriptures translates into this doctrine and way of life and way of worship, that scripture, tradition, and magisterium always stand together. They always stand together, even in those congregations that say scripture alone is their authority. They say that because of the authority of someone who says in our congregation that tradition is that the doctrine of scripture alone is our firm tradition and must be accepted. Or another way of saying it is that it is our authoritative tradition to say scripture alone. And we uphold that. And if you don't embrace that, then you are excluding yourself from our uh, body of believers, right? So that's what, um, that, that would be a way of characterizing in, if you will, in, in these Catholic terms, what's happening and what has historically happened among Protestant congregations that continue to divide and, and um, pop up is that their own, um, their own set, their own stool has, has those three legs that comes to expression in their way. Now, I say all of that just to say that um, we as Catholic parents have a responsibility to help raise our kids in a setting that allows them to understand that the Word of God, this gospel in its fullness that Christ revealed, continues to reverberate, continues to have effect through the church in the world today. But we as members of the church have to do our part to understand what it is that we believe about the Word of God, the Word of God in the form of sacred scripture, the Word of God in the form of sacred tradition, and the servant of that Word of God, the magisterium of the church. The magisterium, once again, being those who have the office of authoritatively interpreting, proclaiming, protecting, defending, and handing on the teaching of the church, the sacred deposit of the faith. I hope that was helpful. There you go. You're just part of my uh, uh, catechism night with my kids. <laughs> God bless your day. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.